Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is on Monday. So I thought this would be a good time to replay a phenomenal debate on the question of whether or not Christians should use violence or participate in the military. This debate is called It's Just War. It occurred on April 20th, 2014, as a joint effort of Anchor Cross Publishing and the Followers of the Way in a historic location in downtown Boston. The debaters were Peter Kreeft and J. Darrell Charles, who defended the classic just war position, and David Brousseau and Dean Taylor, who advocated for the Anabaptist view called Christian pacifism. The debate is cordial, and the recording is top-notch. What's more, the speakers are evenly matched, and the debate moves right along. Some debates, I don't know if you've, how many debates you've listened to, but sometimes they can go three, four, five hours long as the speakers go round after round of cross-examination and rebuttal. This one clocks in at just about two hours. So considering there are four debaters and a room full of people, that is an astounding achievement. If you've ever wondered about whether or not Christians can use violence, or should use violence, this debate will give you a window into how sincere Christians on both sides explain their positions. If you want to know my position on this, check out podcast number 15, A Theology of Nonviolence, where I lay out my own interpretation of the scriptures on this topic. But this is obviously the sort of thing you need to make up your own mind about. So I encourage you to listen into this debate Consider whichever side you line up on, consider the other side and really look at their reasons for holding that position. And I think that this sort of dialogue can just make us better as Christians as we seek to pursue truth wherever it leads. So here now is Podcast 66, It's Just War. John Stuart Mills said, War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth war is much worse. John F. Kennedy said, War will exist until that distant day when the conscientious objector enjoys the same reputation and prestige that the warrior does today. War. Just war. Should Christians fight in military conflict? Is war a necessary but unfortunate reality to maintain peace and order? Or are Christians to refrain from war because they represent another kingdom? We sought to bring together some of the world's premier Christian thinkers for a debate on this important subject. This debate has two participants on each side. We brought a leading Roman Catholic and a leading Protestant to represent the just war position. So what part of thou shalt not kill don't you understand? On the just war side, we have Dr. Peter Kreft 
who is professor of philosophy at Boston College, author of over 67 books on philosophy, theology, and Christian apologetics. A gifted thinker and speaker, he lectures at universities and churches all over the world. He draws inspiration from Socrates, Thomas Aquinas, and C.S. Lewis. His books include Making Sense Out of Suffering, Socrates Meets Jesus, and A Handbook of Christian Apologetics. Dr. Kreft is an outspoken Roman Catholic. Is it always sinful to wage war? The other Just War panelist is Dr. J. Daryl Charles. He received his PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and teaches in the Honors Program at Barry College. He has written 14 books on ethics, Christian engagement in the public square, and just war. He is widely regarded as a leading authority on the Christian just war tradition. His books include Between Pacifism and Jihad, published by InterVarsity Press, War, Peace, and Christianity, published by Crossway, and The Just War Tradition. Jesus Christ was a revolutionary. Speaking against just war and in favor of non-resistance is David Berceau, who is an attorney, author, and speaker. He has written numerous books on the subjects of the early church in which he emphasizes the simplicity of biblical doctrine and early Christian teaching over what he would call the complex and compromised body of the theological understandings built up over the centuries. His most well-known books are Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up and A Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. My wife and I were both soldiers in the U.S. Army. Also speaking against just war and in favor of non-resistance is Dean Taylor. He and his wife, Tanya, were both in the U.S. Army when they realized that, as committed Christians, they had to come to grip with Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount on loving one's enemies. They ultimately left the Army in a new and sincere quest for truth, determined to follow Jesus under the banner, No Compromise. Mr. Taylor is a widely sought speaker who regularly addresses the question, what if Jesus really meant every word he said? His best-known book is A Change of Allegiance. This debate, held in historic Faneuil Hall, is sponsored by Anchor Cross Publishing and Followers of the Way. Well, welcome everyone to this very special occasion that is sponsored by Anchor Cross Publishing and Followers of the Way. We are meeting tonight in historic Faneuil Hall, which was built in 1742. This is arguably the most famous and important debate hall in the country. It is called the Cradle of Liberty because it was here that an impassioned Samuel Adams, whose statue is right in front of the building, gave several speeches about no taxation without representation that led to the American Revolution. The abolition movement of the 1800s also has deep roots here in this building. In this room, Frederick Douglass gave a speech to 5,000 people in 1849. Many presidents, such as George Washington, John F. Kennedy, and Barack Obama have all spoken here. As we begin, I'd like to remind everyone to please silence your cell phones. The topic for the evening is, it's just war, should Christians fight? Some believe that Jesus, the apostles, and the early church strongly taught against war and see the wars of the 20th century between supposedly Christian nations as reaping the harvest of centuries of errant teaching. Others believe that while many wars have been unjust, Christians can wage just war as an expression of loving our neighbors as ourselves in order to maintain peace and order and defend the weak from the strong. 
They reject the notion that Jesus taught his followers against war under all circumstances. That sounds like the basis of a spirited but hopefully gracious debate. So with that, I'm going to introduce our speakers. Rather than formally read the biographies which are printed in your programs, uh, allow me to give a little bit of a more personal introduction. So seated here on my far left is Dr. Peter Kreeft, who teaches philosophy at Boston College. It's fair to say that he has influenced a whole generation of people through his courses and lectures all over the country. When I was in graduate school, I personally benefited from hearing Professor Kreeft speak on apologetics. In my view, his best work is on the problem of suffering. As I wrestled with the problem for many years, I received a breakthrough from hearing one of his lectures with one line that he said. The line was, if the problem of evil is a, is, uh, is, if the problem of evil is a problem for those who believe in God, then there must be a corresponding problem of good that is a problem for those who reject God. Interestingly, he is also a surfer, which you may not have guessed by looking at him. <laughs> Seated here on my immediate right is David Berceau, who has been on a fascinating life journey. I met him first about three years ago when he was speaking at Harvard on the subject of the early church. He's trained as an attorney who specialized in title law, which involves reading long, difficult, tedious documents to determine who has ownership and rights to a particular claim. With that kind of training, Mr. Brousseau dedicated a year of his life in the 1980s to read the entire set of the anti-Nicene Church Fathers, which contains most of what was written by Christians before the year AD 325, which was the, the year of the Council of Nicaea. This is a little bit akin to reading a set of encyclopedias from start to finish and illustrates both his passion and care toward the early church. One of his main themes that comes through in his speaking and writing is going back to the primary sources. And of note, he spends time twice a year in Honduras where he works with the poorest of the poor doing microfinance. Seated here on my immediate left is Dr. Daryl Charles, who teaches at Berry College. I want to tell you two interesting, about him, two, two interesting points about him. First, even though he is advocating for just war, Professor Charles is the son of a Mennonite father who served as a conscientious objector in World War II and served in a veterans hospital. Another surprising fact about him is that he received his PhD from two universities, Westminster Theological Seminary, which is one of the leading Reformed and Calvinist seminaries in the world, and the Catholic University of America. And as you would guess by looking at him, he is a surfer too, believe it or not. <laughs> and I am told that he will be going to the North Shore tomorrow to go surfing. Uh, Though I've recently just gotten to know him, I've been delighted to meet such a gracious and gentle person. And then seated on my far right is Dean Taylor. Dean has served in the United States Army and he left after his study of Jesus' teachings. What you may not know about him is that he was there when the Berlin Wall was coming down. The cover picture on his book, A Change of Allegiance, which I believe is in the back, is him shaking the hand of an East German soldier through a hole in the Berlin Wall as the wall was coming down. So, with that, we are going to begin our, a period of introductions. Each speaker will be given seven minutes to give an opening statement, and we will begin with Mr. Brousseau. Jesus Christ was a revolutionary. No, he wasn't a left-wing guerrilla or a right-wing patriot. 
his revolution wasn't brought about by swords. Rather, his revolution was the introduction of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. In fact, the theme of Jesus' preaching was the kingdom of God. There are nearly a hundred references in the four gospels to God's kingdom. Now, you need to understand that the kingdom of God is not some place you go to when you die. If you're not a citizen of God's kingdom here, you're not gonna be going there after your death. And being a citizen of God's kingdom requires a total commitment. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Mm -hmm. In Christ's kingdom, there can be no divided loyalties. Jesus Christ will not be relegated to a subservient role by anyone or anything. However, too many Christians want to enjoy the benefits of living under his government and the benefits that he offers after death without incurring any hardships or inconveniences for Christ. They want to treat Jesus's commandments like they're mere suggestions. But Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Growing up in the 50s, I often heard talk about the American way. The American way meant the set of values that America had in contrast to communist countries. Similarly, there's a kingdom way. Jesus' kingdom comes with its own set of values. Now these kingdom values seem upside down to most people because they're the opposite of what we might think of from common sense. But the important thing to remember is that the kingdom values are rooted in eternity. And things take on an entirely different light when they're seen through the light of eternity. That's why Jesus' teachings, particularly his Sermon on the Mount, are so revolutionary. As Richard of St. Victor said, the Sermon on the Mount is neither impractical idealism nor a collection of unlivable moral precepts. It is a superb analysis of right action in the light of things as they really are and not as they appear to be. Some of Jesus' revolutionary teachings concern wealth, a new standard of honesty, divorce, lust, and you know, a lot of Christians stumble over those teachings. But I think the teaching that has been the biggest stumbling block is what he said about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. He told us, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. Biblical non-resistance takes those words of Jesus very seriously and very literally. Non-resistance is not simply a theological doctrine. It is a way of life. It touches all kinds of everyday interactions with people and it mandates what we can lawfully do on behalf of our government. But you might be wondering, isn't non-resistance something new? No, it's just the opposite. It's something very old. 
the first non-resistant believer was Jesus himself. And non-resistance was the original position of the Christian church toward war. And I don't make that claim lightly. The early Christians, as uh, Mr. Curvilla mentioned, have been my life study. And up to the fourth century, every single early Christian writer who touched on the subject of war took Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount very literally and very seriously. They applied his words both on a personal level and also uh, on a governmental level applying to war. But didn't the early Christians care about their country, you may be wondering? Yes, they did, but they recognized the existence of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world that they happened to live in and the kingdom of God. Now, one of those two kingdoms had to have their ultimate loyalty because they're often in conflict. The early Christians couldn't give absolute obedience to both kingdoms. So they chose to give their absolute obedience to the kingdom of God. And it's no different today. Obviously, under Romans 13, we Christians obey the laws of our individual countries so long as their laws do not conflict with Christ's laws. But when they do conflict, then we have to make a choice as to who is our ultimate master. Either we will disobey Christ or we will disobey our country. When our country chooses to go to war, we will either love our enemy as Christ commands, or we will do our best to kill our enemy as our country commands. The kingdom of God is a real government. As citizens of God's kingdom, our countrymen are the, our fellow Christians wherever they happen to live on earth. But most Christians view the other residents of their earthly country as their true compatriots, whether those people are atheists or even Satanists. So the test of our kingdom loyalty comes down to, will we kill our fellow Christians because they happen to live in another country, or will we refuse to kill them because they are our fellow citizens? For the United States, this issue came up in the Civil War, one of the bloodiest wars uh, the United States has ever participated in. Now, I want you to suppose something for me. Suppose the 12 apostles had lived at the time of the Civil War, and that six of them lived in the North, and six of them lived in the South. What do you think they would have done? What do you think they would have told other Christians to do? to ask the question set before us this evening. Thomas Aquinas, in his famous treatment of the subject in question 40 of the Summa, frames the question this way, is it always sinful to wage war? And Luther found it necessary in his day to address this very question in his important tract, whether soldiers too can be saved. The matter has vexed believers for the ages, and it's produced varied and sometimes radically different responses. That will not change tomorrow. But we can be encouraged by the mainstream teaching of the church, which has always been with us. To ask if Christians are permitted to fight in a war is to ask whether Christians are permitted to use coercive force in any context. It is really to ask whether Christians are permitted to enter vocations that contribute to the common good 
and guard justice. This, of course, is to ask whether Christians can be involved in a broad array of politics and governmental service with almost infinite forms. For example, practicing law, serving as judges, working at correctional facilities or social services, law enforcement, uh, serving as a security guard, police work, driving Brinks trucks, doing public policy, doing diplomacy, doing computer or linguistic work for federal agencies, on and on. It needs emphasizing that there are no biblical injunctions prohibiting any vocation under the sun, per se. Scripture does, yes, counsel us about motives. Thus, for example, Christ's words in the Sermon of the Mount and Paul's teaching in Romans 12 about not retaliating speak to matters of the heart, not to public policy. And the text from Matthew 5 that's often cited uh, as pacifist non-resistance justification and rejection of force is addressing insult, not assault, as the text makes very clear, matters of the heart, not of statecraft. Now, while the Christian pacifist is not required to use force in self-defense, we are obligated to defend an innocent third party by an appropriate and just means. Ethicist Paul Ramsey has called this a preferential ethics of protection and a duty of charity. And Ramsey, by the way, also extends this logic to the parable of the Good Samaritan by asking, quote, would Jesus have, quest have, would Jesus have encouraged his listeners to prevent the mugging while it was actually happening? Or should they wait in non-resistance until after the mugging when the criminals are gone? Coercive force can be used for just and moral purposes, which is not to argue that it always is or even that it normally is. But not only are just, just war theorists aware of that, but also law enforcement officers on a daily basis. Do you think, <clears throat> do you think the Jews were not happy when allied forces forcefully broke the back of Nazism, preventing further, future further holocausts? And does anyone in our midst, does our culture recall Gandhi's nonviolent pacifist advice to European Jews caught in the tragedy of German totalitarianism? His advice was that they commit suicide and awaken thereby the world's conscience rather than fight back against Nazi tyranny. This, it seems to me, is neither moral nor charitable nor just. And for this reason, Reinhold Niebuhr caustically rejected the pacifist, non-interventionary argument of his day, the 1940s, which hoped for, quote, if Britain had only been fortunate enough to have produced 30% instead of 2% of conscientious objectors to military service, then perhaps Hitler's heart, in fact, would have been softened and he would not have attacked Poland or anyone else. Pacifism's theological error is to assume that temporary judgments in the present life carried out through temporal authorities are not necessary. Alas, justice without force is a myth, which is not to suggest that justice always requires force. As we all know, any of us here this evening who resist paying our taxes will be forcefully and forcibly imprisoned. Now, not only is no vocation identified by scripture or the Christian moral tradition as per se violating moral law or creation mandates, with the exception of prostitutes for Jesus, uh, organized crime, and what have you, neither Jesus nor, 
John the Baptist nor the apostles call soldiers away from their profession. In fact, Jesus strikingly says of a centurion, of an officer in the Roman legions, I've not found faith like this in all of Israel. And God uses another officer in the legions, Cornelius, to help expand Peter's understanding of the kingdom of God. Guess what? It's even open to, God forbid, soldiers. Furthermore, John the Baptist exhorts soldiers with two specific qualifications. Do you remember what they were? Yes, be content with your wages and do not use your position to oppress others. Now, this is a stunning omission by John the Baptist. Recall the context, repentance, uh, if in fact it is an absolute moral prescription. The church's mainstream teaching, as exemplified by the Catholic Catechism represented our stage tonight, affirms the legitimacy of all vocations in serving the Lord and the common good. This wide array includes service to the state, security, military affairs, such as uh, my daughter-in-law is doing public policy and diplomacy, as my sister did with the government before retiring. Uh, also informing army officers, military personnel on moral decision-making, as I do from time to time and did recently at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff Com College at Fort Leavenworth. Doing criminal justice research in Washington, as I did before I entered the classroom full-time. And bringing science to bear on national security issues, as a colleague of mine, a Christian at Barry, does. Let me close. Uh, on an autobiographical note, people from the tradition in which I grew up, Mennonite Anabaptist baptism, confessed from the beginning of the 16th century that the sword should not be wielded by believers. And in large part, this theological stance was the result of a tragic fact that both Catholics and fellow Protestants were using the sword against them, hence the ban in Article 6 of the Schleitheim Confession. And the Anabaptist account since then has been grounded in certain assumptions about violence, about military service, about a pacifist reading of the New Testament, and about interpretation of the early church uh, that requires the, uh, uniformity among all the fathers. And I would want to argue that this sketch is a bit simplistic and ignores countervailing evidence. Now, a final word on the just war tradition, uh, which is being represented by two of us tonight. It occupies an intermediate position on the spectrum of force between the absolutist poles of militarism or crusading and pacifism on one and the other side. The just war position shares pacifism's commitment to peace, yes, but it acknowledges the potential for an unjust peace as the mafia or terrorists or pirates well know. And as Luther famously quipped using biblical biblical imagery. If we believe that the lion and lamb are to lie down together in this life, then the lamb will need constant replacing. I grew up on a farm. Believe me, I know that it's true. Closing statement, the reason for the just war tradition's nuanced and qualified view of force lies in its underlying philosophical foundation. What is that? It's a wedding of justice and charity, giving it its unique ethical character. This commitment to right intention bestows on it a distinctly Christian imprimatur and comports with mainstream teaching of the church, even when not, not all people and all situations or all vocations call for force. Thank you very much. <clears throat> that was a great quote.
You know, it's ironic that I'm talking about biblical non-resistance tonight, because 25 years ago, my wife and I were both soldiers in the U.S. Army. And one scene that I remember from basic training is the drill sergeants bellowing out, what makes the grass grow? To all that, we were supposed to respond, blood, 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 blood makes the grass grow. After that, we would thrust our M16s with bayonets attached in the air, shouting, kill, kill, with cold blue steel, kill, kill, with cold blue steel. You know, looking back, I have often wondered, what was I thinking? But one night, my wife and I started reading the Bible together. And we read, as we read night after night, the Bible became alive to us. During that time, God convicted us about many things that needed to change in our lives. But perhaps the greatest change happened one night as I read to my wife from the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Gospels Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I can still vividly remember leaning over on my lopsided pillow and reading, out, uh, reading to her out loud. And I read to her how Jesus instructed us to love our enemies, not just our neighbors as ourselves, but our enemies, to go out of the way for them, to pray for them, feed them, to help them, and to do good things for them. He said, in doing so, we would become children of his father. You know, after reading it, I looked to Tanya and said, so what are we supposed to do with that? Well, it sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? She calmly answered, yeah, but we're in the army. I began to ponder this passage seriously and pray. I evaded the question a little while thinking, the theologians have got to have a good explanation for this one. Surely it had to mean more than what it literally said. I started to gather books in hope that I would find a good biblical defense for just war and the role of Christians killing people in the military. After all, the church had always believed in the idea of a just war, or at least that's what I originally thought. I read through many of the books attempting to justify the Christians placed in war and self-defense. As I read, I began to notice a common thread. In these military theological and historical books, war is often likened to the surgeon's knife or the farmer's hoe. The need to defend the innocent, the helpless, and the just outweighed all the evil acts of war. They explained that this was what it meant to love our neighbor. And that made a little bit of sense. But what troubled me about this was that Jesus didn't just say to love our neighbor as ourselves, but also to love our enemies. Well, many in the just war traditions had an answer for this too. For instance, Augustine taught that the teachings of Jesus were not necessarily meant to be practiced outwardly so long as we maintain an inward disposition. Augustine taught that we could still love our enemies and kill them just as long as our heart was right. To this I had to laugh. Those gra graphic death chants that we shouted in the army made it kind of hard to take Augustine seriously. After all the reading, in spite of all the rationale, as much as I tried, I just could not let go of the simple, albeit impractical words of Jesus, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. And then something happened. I dared to ask the question, what if Jesus really meant every word he said? What if he meant these things? And after asking that question, everything in my world changed. And I believe, put very simply, that's what is at stake here tonight. Did Jesus mean what he said about our enemies or did he not? Now, I'll be transparent here. 
As I started to read books written from the pacifist side, I was often disappointed. In many of these books, the Old Testament was frequently explained away. The God of the Old Testament was almost portrayed as a different God than the God of the New Testament. Worse yet, the teachings of Jesus still seemed far in the distance, often taking a backseat to liberal politics. I began to feel somewhat alone. In my view, the political right was not being honest with the teachings of Jesus, especially as it pertained to war and economics. However, the left was almost making nonsense out of the justice of God in the majority of the Old Testament. And this is where the early church fathers really helped me. In their view, God cannot change. They fought against guys like Marcion and the likes who taught that the Old Testament God was different from the New. They understood that the Old Testament says that Yahweh is a warrior, and they believe that he is still a warrior. After all, it was Jesus who, when he was describing what his teachings would do within society and the home, said, I come not to bring peace but a sword. However, what the early church believed had changed is how we fight. To the early church fathers, Christians still fight God's war. We still actively spread his kingdom. However, it is now by the cross, forward as lambs to the slaughter, offering salvation, healing, life, and hope. And in particular, Jesus himself manifested in his kingdom, the church. Today, this kingdom is still the answer for the world. This is the plain language of the Bible and the early church history. We can dream up sophisticated arguments taken from silence today, but the fact is that when it comes to the statements that are actually made, the only way to have Jesus, the apostles, and the first 300 years of the church in agreement is to conclude that when Jesus said, love your enemies, he meant it literally and that this kind of love doesn't include killing them. The just war theory came into the scene in Christendom in the fifth century, and I believe they meant well. But the results of this theology has marred the church worse than any of our mistakes. How many of us have tried telling someone about Jesus only to be met with, well, what about the Crusades or what about the Inquisition? Truly, the worst atrocities ever inflicted upon mankind have often been committed by men who think they do God a service. Brothers and sisters, I know you all here believe Jesus is the cure for humanity, but if we are going to be healed, we're going to have to take the physician seriously. Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, feed and pray for them, etc., and left us an eternal example of what that kind of love looked like. To ignore his teaching is to ignore Jesus. What if Jesus really meant every word he said? Imagine what a church would look like more what a world would look like if we really believed that he did. That was very inspiring, seriously. I agree with all of your premises, I just don't think they entail your conclusion. I have a soft spot in my heart for pacifism. Not just for pacifists, but for pacifism. When I debate atheists, I wish there were no atheists in the world. When I debate moral relativists, I wish there were no moral relativists in the world. When I debate uh, pro-abortionists, I wish there were no pro-abortionists in the world. But I'm glad there are pacifists in the world, even though I'm not one of them. I'm like Tolkien. 
He put Tom Bombadil into The Lord of the Rings as a symbol of honorable pacifism, even though he was not a pacifist. So I'm going to perhaps apparently undercut my own position by giving you 10 arguments for pacifism, but then I'm going to refute each one of them. Let's see if I can do that in five minutes. Argument number one. So what part of thou shalt not kill don't you understand? Answer, the word that you just mistranslated, kill. It means murder. The same God who said thou shalt not murder also commanded capital punishment. Argument number two, but the New Testament is radically new. Our supreme example and model is Christ on the cross. And the supreme following of Christ is martyrdom. And my answer is yes, this is quite true. For individuals, Christ calls us to a higher way. When we are confronted with violence, uh, we do not fight fire with fire. When we have a choice between giving up our own life and taking another life, the higher way is to give up our own life. That's quite true. But Jesus did not give you a, a political system. The New Testament is not the Quran. Uh, Islam is necessarily wedded to a political system. Christianity is not. So when Christ said, turn the other cheek, he was not addressing governments, he was addressing individuals. Ah, but, argument three, in the New Testament, peace is holy. Peace is something in God himself, and therefore it's a gift that comes from God. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the effect of Christ's revolution. This is true. But he explicitly said, I don't give you peace as the world gives. And he also said he came not to bring peace, but a sword. So how do you interpret these things? Uh, the text is certainly to be taken seriously, and every single word that Jesus said is infallibly true. But he deliberately spoke in paradoxes. Fourth, the New Testament explicitly says that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Yes, God is a warrior, but he wants us to participate in the real war, which is spiritual. This is true. This is absolutely true. Uh, our enemies are, first of all, our own sins, and, third, and secondly, the evil spirits that inspire them and use them. But these spiritual enemies of ours use flesh and blood so that often fighting them requires disarming them. Argument five, Christ seemed to forbid the justice war in all of human history. In the garden, when he told Peter to put up his sword, don't defend the most innocent person who ever lived. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. This is true, but Christ also, as has been pointed out, uh, who called John the Baptist the greatest prophet of the old kingdom, uh, apparently approved uh, what John said to the soldiers, and he himself approved the Roman centurion. And both St. Paul and St. Peter explicitly uh, defend the use of the sword by the state. Paul in Romans 13, 4, and Peter in 1 Peter 2, 14. So are you going to separate Christ from his disciples? Argument six, yet God is love 
And therefore, the New Testament absolutizes love, which must motivate every single act of every single Christian at every single moment of his life. This is true. How then can you kill people out of love? Your motive cannot be to kill. Your motive must be to defend. But when you defend the innocent against the aggressor, your motive is not changed. Your motive remains love. Violence is a last resort, but sometimes it's a necessary last resort. But you're absolutely right about the revolution that Jesus brings. Whether that's translated into political pacifism uh, is nevertheless questionable. Argument seven, war is hell. There is no such thing as a just war. James says, what's the origin of war? Greed. The origin of war is always evil. Even the Quran says, Allah hates the aggressor. Without aggression, there's no war. War is the stupidest idea that has ever occurred to the human mind. It amounts to this. Hey, we've got some problems. How are we gonna resolve them? I know, let's go out tomorrow morning and kill each other. Great idea. That's true. That's true. There is no such thing as a just war. But there is a just warring. A war against war. The use of violence as a last resort in defense against the use of violence as aggression. The end of a just war is not conquest, it's peace. Argument eight. All's fair in love and war, supposedly. That's obviously nonsense. Uh, human justice, what we call human justice, is radically different from divine justice. Pascal imagines two soldiers confronting each other. Why are you killing me? I am unarmed. Oh, because you live on the other side of the river. If you lived on this side of the river, uh, I would be a traitor. But since you were born on the other side of the river, I am a, a good man, and this is right. It is true, human justice is radically unjust, and we do not live in utopia. Sometimes amputations are necessary. Argument nine, war always creates more evils than it corrects. Simple answer, that's questionable. Would it have, better, would it have been better if the Greeks had not warred against Xerxes or the Romans against Hannibal or us against Hitler? Would that have created a better world? My time is up, I'll reserve my 10th argument for the end. Thank you. As, um, as we commence the next section, I want to draw attention to some cards that are in your programs. Those are question cards, and as the, as the night uh, proceeds, I would encourage you to, if you have a question, write your question down on the card. Try to keep it as succinct and clear as possible and to whom you would like the question addressed. Uh, in about 15 minutes, we'll collect those questions and then we will proceed to ask both sides uh, how, what their response would be to that. For the next 15 minutes or so, I wanted to ask a series of questions inspired by the dialogue that we've, we've just heard. And the first question I would like to ask would be to, uh, to the side against just war. Both Dr. Kreeft and Dr. Charles mentioned the issue of soldiers and how the New Testament apparently condones soldiers. Cornelius uh, was, was uh, apparently approved, John the Baptist, et cetera. Please give your understanding of that. 
It's a great question, and I, I think that um, several of those examples in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament, do need to seriously be looked at. Um, you know, when it comes to Cornelius, it's it's interesting that it's brought up because Cornelius is a centurion, as we know in Acts chapter ten, it talks about his conversion, and it said, well, it didn't say that he got out or left this post uh, as he became a Christian. What's amazing about the argument is that there's all kinds of people who came to Jesus, prostitutes, tax collectors and such, and there's no mention of these giving up their profession. So it's like saying, is there prostitutes in the church too then? It's, 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 a, it's an argument from silence at best. Uh, the, the John the Baptist one I think is a little more valid. I, I think it has, you have people coming up to him and saying, actually soldiers saying, what should I do? And so it, it begs for a, a, a better response. But the, the answer is actually pretty profound. Uh, a couple things is that we see in John the Baptist, first of all, that in the timeline of it, it was spoken even before the Sermon on the Mount was even preached. But there's a more profound statement in that, and, and Dr. Um, Kraft even mentioned it in his opening, is that John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And so therefore, he was representing an Old Covenant idea. He would have had no place or no authority to make these sort of changes that Jesus meant in the way we go about doing our war. And so I, I, I look at those things and I say, it seems like the evidence points again towards the idea that they would have each, well, John the Baptist was killed even before the, it happened. So I, I don't think the argument holds. Either would like to respond? What do you do then with the passages where both Peter and Paul defend the use of a sword? Repeat. Okay. Oh, okay, okay, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. And um, there's a, a, a factor that I, I, I realize you're not uh, understanding about us. There are two different groups of people who would be opposed to war. There are what we would normally call liberal pacifists who would like deny that the government should have armies or policemen or that sort of thing. Okay. Now, biblical non-resistance is, is what we would represent. It would be the Schleidheim confession that, that uh, Dr. Dr. Charles mentioned. And um, what we see the scripture saying is that that lies outside of the perfection of Christ. Uh, but it does not take away from the world, from the kingdoms of this world, the right to have policemen, to have armies, to, to protect themselves, all of those sort of functions. We don't deny that and we support that with our taxes. That's clearly in the scripture. So, yeah, I, I, I realize when you're saying that, that you didn't realize what our position was on that. And can I read that passage to us from, from Romans 13? It's very powerful. And again, I think it's, 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 there's, if there's any passage that we have to look at when it deals with the Christians and, and governments and that type of thing. If there's any, it's Romans chapter 13. It's very strong language. The interesting context is that it comes out of Romans chapter 12, where Paul is giving a lot of ethics that seem to be echoing the Sermon on the Mount about not resisting evil, that God is our avenger and that type of thing. And then it goes and it changes uh, or develops now, well then, well, if you have these kind of ethics, well, how are you going to get on in, in this real world? And Romans 13 gives us some very strong language. But listen to that. Listen to how strong the language is. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will be, bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have the praise of the same. Now, this is the clincher here. For he is God's minister to you for good. I'll just stop there. That's strong language. But now the, the, the profound thing about this statement is who was he specifically referring to at that time? It was Nero. And he talks about that this wicked government that was going on at this time that had this sword that was used was given to this world by God for his purposes. It's what's, what's irony is that that sword is what chopped off Paul's head, according to church tradition. And when you go through that, that this idea of God having these two kingdoms and, this, and these uh, govern, governments acting that way, it's a, it's a common thread, if I may. Um, when you go into the Old Testament, you see Isaiah prophesying that he calls the Assyrians the sword of my wrath and speaks of them in that way. And Jeremiah, it even goes into more detail in Jeremiah 25, where it mentions that when God is tired of the sin of Judah and everything, he sends Nebuchadnezzar to them. And he actually uses a term there in, in uh, Jeremiah 25 that he says, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment on Judah. And he says, my minister, or my servant, it says in the Hebrew there in the, in the Old Testament. And we see this, uh, Cyrus was called my shepherd. And so the, the thing that we have to, to, to come face to face with is the idea that we can plainly see, at least by Paul's time, that God does use pagan governments to use his will and to govern his world apart from where the church is in that. And we can plainly see, at least in Paul's day, that those two kingdoms were separate. And the, and the, uh, the thing that I would just like to, to bring out is that this is consistent in Old Testament and in New Testament. There is no change there. God has his people and God uses these governments to do his will. So that's how we would see that. Let's, well, let's, let's give some time to, to the other side. It was a long one answer. Go ahead. Bottom line practical question then. Okay. You're the President of the United States. You're a Christian. We're back in a time when the United States still identified itself as a Christian nation. Even President Truman uttered those words. No president would utter those words today. Uh, when I first started teaching philosophy, it was in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, and I taught part-time at Haverford, which is a Quaker college, and most of them are pacifists. And the first philosophical argument I ever lost, I think, was to a pacifist student. You know, a young philosopher thinks he knows everything. Uh, and I said to him, so you're a pacifist? Yes. Well, this was the, during the time of, of Nixon and Khrushchev and the, uh, uh, the shoe on the desk at the United Nations. I said, okay, suppose, suppose uh, you get elected president. You would run for president, wouldn't you? You don't uh, uh, say political office is evil. No, no, I would. All right. Uh, Khrushchev uh, notices that a Quaker is the president. And he does some research and he finds out that the, the Quaker is, is committed to uh, not using violence in war. So he sends the whole Russian army across the Atlantic and they steam up the Potomac. Uh, you don't send out the Navy to blow them out of the water and kill them? No, no, they don't, okay. Uh, and you're sitting there in the Oval Office and Khrushchev comes in and he says, all right, move over, I'm taking over. Would you allow that? He said, yes, however, I would say, welcome brother in Christ, and I would preach to him the gospel. I had nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> it was impressive. Yeah. I disagreed with him, but, uh, uh, but it was impressive. Mm -hmm. Is that what you would do? 
No, see the difference there, the Quakers um, try to combine to me the, the kingdoms of this world with the, with the kingdom of, of God. The Anabaptist tradition uh, from the start has always been, that, you know, when Paul talks in Romans 13, it's third person, they. It's not when we are rulers, it's he, you know, they, third person. So no, how could I serve as commander in chief if I'm not gonna go to war? I can't serve as commander in chief and order someone else or, or all of that, no. Uh, an Anabaptist has no business being in politics, being president or that. Just, oh, so you wouldn't be president? Oh, no, of course not. Well, you're sort of with Harry Truman there. One of the wisest things any president ever said is, in this great land of ours, every little baby that's born an American citizen has a chance to grow up someday and find himself the president of the United States. That's just a chance the poor little bastard has to take. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess we're left out of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great discussion. Well, so, go ahead. Even though you wouldn't become president and you wouldn't be a military commander, would you still be glad that the nation had a military to protect you against invasion? Yeah, as Romans 13 says, the sword is given to the government by, so by God. Hope, so you'd hope that there were some pagans who would do your dirty work for you? No, no. It's not going to be non-resistant Christians who are coming over here to attack us. Pagans need to take care of their problem the ones who are doing the attacking. It's not going to be non-resistant Christians, whether in Russia or America, who are doing it. I don't need any protection from non-resistant fellow citizens of God's kingdom. The problem is everybody else. So, yeah, the world needs to take care of the world's problems. What do you do then to Christians who don't share your semi-pacifist principles? How do you protect them? Well, the ones who don't share that, of course, protect themselves. And you don't disagree with that. You'd persuade them, but you wouldn't make laws or, or anything like that to, to... Jesus doesn't, doesn't force his kingdom on anybody. I mean, he, he, he lays out his teachings and it's up to us whether we want to embrace them or not. Well, We'd... you know, that's, that's actually a more consistent position than I thought. That's a double standard. I mean, you're individual pacifists, but you're not government pacifists because you don't go into government. Right. And you would require that they remain unbelievers in order that they can Absolutely carry... Not. We believe that Jesus Christ is the cure for humanity. And that we can argue here from a, a historical perspective, you know, you brought it up in your intro that, you know, has it really done, has war, has these wars done good for us or bad for us? And that, that's a debate I guess you could go on all night. But the point is that we believe that Jesus is the answer. And I don't see that the, the way the world has gone and the progress that it's made in this warfare has... has been something that is bringing the kingdom of God into existence or something. Well, Dean, I don't know that you're answering the question, I, I, but I want to make can sure. Can I get the, the, the monitor up here? It's very, I'm very stri struggling yeah. to hear it, especially Dr. Crave. But, but in order to maintain the absolute distinction between the perfection of Christ and the world, which began uh, with the, uh, formally with the Schleitheim Confession, you would want to maintain then that princes, judges, uh, civil servants, magistrates cannot profess faith in order to maintain the... Well, it's putting words in my mouth. It's to say that... No, I'm asking. Okay, I'm yeah. asking. To I, say I'm that I don't desire that they know the way of Christ would be... Yeah, that's not me at all. 
um, that, the, that God has used governments on this earth to govern worlds from Nebuchadnezzar to, to Assyria to Nero is a very obvious fact. Um, Paul was, I'm sure, very happy that these things were in existence. That's why he was teaching the church that way. But, that but even from question. this beginning, that there was, was a very clear difference. Yeah, that was my question. My question was, if the magistrate wants to confess faith, you're saying there's an absolute dichotomy. It can't happen. Absolutely no. not. No, he can, it can happen. He's going to have to resign. It's what happened in the early church. Okay, okay. Uh, See. Yeah. No, we want them to come to Christ. No, 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 I didn't ask that. I asked... Would you want him to be a confessing magistrate? And you would ask him to step down from... We'd that was, that was the okay. consistent position in the early church. I mean, that, you know... You, would you okay, want a to step down to Okay, him? I'm an attorney, so let's just take... Lo the local policemen who use violence to protect the innocent against unjust aggression. Would, would that be inconsistent with being a Christian? Would you ask a, a, a Christian policeman to stop being a policeman? I would, yes, I, I would. He would need to step down. I mean, if we're going to love our enemies, we're going to love our enemies. But again, his job isn't going to be protecting people from non-resistant Christians. He's protecting people from the world. You know, if, if everybody were professing Christians or as far as we are concerned, we don't need policemen. They're not there and we don't need the, the magistrates. We don't go to court. All right, then let's, instead of talking about the relation between individuals and the state, let's talk about it on a purely individual level. All Sorry, right. One more time, the last part. Yeah, it, it, we're having trouble hearing you. Uh, on the individual level. Okay. Uh, you're a Christian father. You have a number of kids. Uh, one of them is a bully. You see him beating up his little sister. Uh, you tell him to stop. He doesn't. Do you use force? Do you use violence? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. He's asking about a situation of parents younger sibling is bullying younger sibling. Do you intervene with force in that situation? The Bible, the same Bible that, that teaches to turn the other cheek also teaches a father is supposed to take the rod to his child. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's not, and I wanted to clarify, one of you had mentioned that um, um, we can't do something if something evil is happening. Of course we can, we can do something. We can put ourselves... In, in between the, the evil and, and uh, the evil person and, and the recipient, you can restrain someone. I mean, the Christians restrained Paul from going into the stadium at Ephesus. If, if you can restrain Paul, I, I think we should be able to restrain somebody else. All right, let me, let me ask a, a, another question. You're a father of a family, uh, and you've got maybe six kids, and they're scattered around the house, and a homicidal maniac comes into your room, uh, and he's insane. Uh, and he shoots one of your kids dead, mm -hmm. and you know he's going to shoot the other five dead, and you're on the other side of the room, and the only way you can stop him uh, is by taking a rifle off the wall and shooting him. Do you do it? The problem is I don't, I don't own any guns. <laughs> I, I don't have a rifle yeah. to, to do it. But, but it's, it's, it brings in, we, and we, need to, we really need to face the what-if questions, the, the guy breaking into the house question, and I, it's one of my favorites because... You know, we can talk about just war in the abstract and all these types of things, but we need to bring it home to where things can happen like that. But the, one of the things that this, and this always comes up in these kind of debates, is, is a, a very false dichotomy. That what's being offered to, to people who believe in the ways of Jesus is that you either shoot this guy, I grab a gun and shoot this guy, or I do nothing. And the, the truth is that it's the things that we do that's different than those two options that really makes us followers of Christ. The interesting thing about Jesus is his whole concept of suffering love, 
how he would absorb evil, how he would put himself in harm's way. And, and as we see those things, it works only, not only on a, uh, a global scale, but it also works down there in the home as well. There's many things we should do. We should put ourselves in harm's way to be suffering love would be the most noble thing to do. But the one thing we're not allowed to do is to kill him. And here's the thing, it, it's amazing it's amazing to look at these things and, and look at this scenario, but it's not a ridiculous scenario. This happens. It happens in Boston here maybe tonight. But the point is, is that to take this now and to use this as a defense for war, to, to me, is, is, is very strange. The, the idea that sometimes think bad things happen is truth, but to pretend that war doesn't cause people to come in and rape our wives and to do these terrible things, that's really unfair when we look at some of the damages that have happened in war like this. So the truth is, though, I don't want to, to sneak around it. Sometimes bad stuff happens, and it happens at our home, and the Christian must be willing to die. In the worst case scenario, you die or a family member dies, but we die believing that Jesus Christ is the answer. And sometimes that's not always easy. Just to, to recap, and then we want to move on to some, some new topics, there's been a, a spirited discussion on the New Testament regarding soldiers, and I think we've heard uh, the, the anti-just war side say that you could just as well say that prostitutes and, and uh, fortune tellers, etc. weren't accepted. It's an argument from silence. Uh, the, the interesting discussion that's happened over the last few minutes has been around really the, the notion of two kingdoms versus the, the typical pacifist position. And, and David Brousseau tried to articulate the differences there. What I want to do now is I want to move into uh, a very specific practical uh, sort of issue that relates to just war. Because I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is to understand what this looks like in real life. So it's Rwanda. The genocide is raging. Millions of people are dying. Children, women are being raped. Uh, innocent lives are being taken. Non-resistance sounds like a, passive, a very passive term. Sounds like you just sit and watch it and hope for the best. What do you actually do? Okay, it's a great, it's a great analogy because it's one of the worst atrocities we've seen uh, in modern times. I think 800,000 people were killed in a, in a very short amount of time. Between that and a million quarter. Okay, thank you. It's, it was brutal. Uh, it's, it's terrible, terrible tragedy that's happened to us. Uh, I'd like to look at, break it down to three things, three different levels of this, and that's the before, the during, and the after. Um, first of all, when we look at Rwanda, the one thing that we're going to have to admit here, and this is going to affect a lot of these tyrants and terrible atrocities, is that these weren't just ignorant um, natives running around in total darkness. These were Christians who were taught by Catholics and evangelicals uh, a way that uh, did not show the way of Christ. And I think we have to be honest with that, that these, this, uh, Rwanda was considered a Christian nation, many people said. The second thing is, okay, that's the before. So first of all, I think we need to take the responsibility as Christians of how we've caused some of these tyrants and these Frankensteins of history. The second one is during the actual act. Again, just like I said, it, the, what happens in our home is what happens in the national level. It's time for us in many of those places to be receiving the tragedy, being in the way, trying to do something to help in every way we could. Jesus had some incredible things where he, he didn't just not act pacifist, he said, help those people, feed those people. And, and it's different than like 
Jesus followers and Buddhists. We don't just sit there and do nothing. Oftentimes, it's that very action that makes it different, makes us followers of Christ. And then the third thing is afterwards. The, the, the history has seen in the church and, and uh, our own tradition with the Anabaptists has how we respond after those tragedies. And I would say that we've had a good tradition of going into areas where there's been catastrophes, where there's been things, and offering aid to help to alleviate this from happening again. As we saw, World War I led to World War II. It was from this very thing. So I, I like to look at that in those three different ways. It's, it's very, uh, all of it from beginning to end is to show them a living example of Jesus Christ. So response to that. You still haven't explained what you would do during the Rwandan massacre. Okay. You still haven't explained what you would do with the homicidal maniac. So you don't have a rifle on the wall. So let's say your wife has just died and you're the father and you have six kids and they're totally dependent on you. And if you die, they're in a terrible situation. Uh, do you have a right to give up your life then? Absolutely. Is Jesus, did Jesus have a right when he had such an incredible responsibility of, of fathering the entire beginning of the church to give his life? It's but, that suffering but, love that changes the world. But if, if you put yourself between the homicidal maniac and your kids, mm -hmm. the maniac will kill you and then he will kill your kids. So you'll, so, so you'll have nobody left. Or uh, maybe he'll kill you and then not kill your kids and then your kids won't have a father. That seems irresponsible to me. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I guess we must live sheltered lives because somehow these things never happen to non-resistant Christians. It's always the, the Catholics, the evangelicals who seem to know about homicidal maniacs that break in their, their house. You we yourself just talked about Rwanda. That's even worse. Okay, well, and, okay, we'll get to Rwanda in a minute. Yeah. Has this ever happened to, to any of us? I, I've, I've talked to Mennonite after Mennonite. Has this ever happened to you? Do you know of anyone this has ever happened to? There is something about God being able to protect our families. We put our families under the protection of God. And I would say we are victims of crime far less than Christians who, who uh, rely on guns to protect them. Okay, back to Rwanda. What you guys are doing, now you're taking two sets of Christians who are not non-resistant, right. and then they get slaughtering each other, and then you throw it to us, what would you guys do? Well, wait a minute. These are your people who are slaughtering each other. I mean, that's your, what are you saying? What would we do? I mean, we would, were teaching, hey, Christians don't kill. Obviously, that's not what they were taught, and you see this horrible massacre. So that gets to the before. So let, let's talk about the before. What sets the stage for this kind of violence? We know that, that Nazi Germany was a Lutheran country. We know that many of these horrible atrocities have happened in, in Protestant and Catholic nations. Please respond. What was the question? The question is, is can we, how do we address the issue of not just the during the conflict, but before? That in the case of the Hutus and the Tutsis, they were both professing Christians on, on either side who were taught some form of, who knows what exactly, but some form of, of uh, violence being okay. So the, do then the just war uh, camp, does that camp then accept some responsibility for laying the groundwork for that conflict to begin with? Is that really a debatable question? I mean, we obviously teach them all the teachings of Jesus, and we teach them about love and forgiveness, uh, and we teach them nonviolence. Well, that's, but that's the issue. That you wouldn't say, you wouldn't teach them nonviolence. You, would, you, you too would, would not teach them that, but they, but they would. And so they're saying, why are you blaming us no, for, I would, for your, I would, your teaching of violence? I would teach them the nonviolence that I think Jesus taught. Hmm. Response, Dr. 
Dr. Charles? Yeah, I, I guess I am, I am not quite satisfied with uh, the breakdown. That's, that's the rest of Christendom's pro problem in our communities when you don't deal, deal with that. That may be true, and you're to be commended for that. Uh, but uh, life-giving love crosses, bridges itself to the world, even in very violent uh, uh, cultures. Now, there's a history here. Uh, this was not just a boil that burst. Right. Yeah. So between 800,000 and a million and a quarter people who were macheted within a period of about three weeks didn't just happen overnight. So I would want, as someone who's interested in public policy, and by the way, I, in total faith and in, out of love to the Lord, I, I see that as very legitimate and can do it in faith. I would want to ask questions that feed into intelligence issues. Um, uh, there's diplomacy that has to take place. Uh, it can't be settled tonight what should have been done necessarily. But it seems to me all, all arms, all measures of governmental, NGO, service need to be brought to bear where there is a sense that something is building. Um, one, and, and, and Dean, I need to just gently uh, uh, chasten you there. Your, your stereotyping of just war thus far has not been accurate. Uh, uh, the idea of, uh, that killing is at the center of it, no. Uh, protecting. Force is permitted, but it's limited, mm -hmm. okay? And, and, and uh, maybe the soldiers and maybe the ethos when mm -hmm. you were serving was like that. But I will tell you today, this extends from our military academies to uh, the leadership, command leadership. Uh, something is going on that doesn't comport with that, and I'm, I'm happy no. to say that. And, and I, I want others to hear that. Uh, that doesn't mean everything is right. Uh, but I thought that was a, not a, a, a fair stereotype. It seems to me that if uh, Rwanda is a great scar in the Western world based on love of neighbor, whether it's your next door neighbor, whether it's the neighborhood, whether it's the, in, of the city in which you live, whether it's the neighbor country in the community of nations, those nations, I would argue, as a Christian, not as a policy analyst. As a Christian, those nations which have the wherewithal to prevent catastrophe and disaster must use any and all means to do, to do that under the banner of what is just. That's going to include everything non-forcibly, but yes, then force as a last resort, if that is the case. And so it seems to me that there will be, because evil men will do evil things in this life, even if it's not happening in certain communities. Praise the Lord for that. But that's not a carte blanche then to say we have no responsibility to the world. And it certainly is not a carte blanche to render or reinterpret all of the New Testament now to say it can't be permitted. <laughs> the just war tradition I want to say, too, not only qualifies whether or not we enter, whether or not we intervene. Sometimes the tradition... Say, that, know, say that last part. Yeah. Not only does the just war tradition not only qualify war, sometimes we should, sometimes we shouldn't, okay? And, and I guess that point needs to be made. The just war tradition 
it's, it's moral wisdom can cause us to go either way. <laughs> the wisdom of the tradition, hopefully, will cause us to hold back. <laughs> you see? So it's not a carte blanche just to paste that. We, as a nation, we want to go in, let's just justify it anyway. No, that's not the just war tradition. Sometimes that severe qualification causes us to say no. And even when morally all, all things can be justified, there are then prudential prudential criteria that might hold us back in the end. That's the tradition. So you have the jus ad bellum side of that, justice in going to war. You have classically the jus in bello, justice in prosecuting or using force, armed force. But thankfully, due to the events of the last 10 years, not solely, but thankfully in the last decade, there are new discussions in the military and among theorists on jus, translate this for me, postbellum. That is to say, after a war-torn, a decimated, <laughs> a genocide-stricken area is on the ground. Do we have a, a responsibility to go in and, in charity, engage in nation-building? Listen, you're right, I read your thoughts, Many people will object and say, there goes Imperial U U.S. again, just going in because they want to. But I married a German woman. My father-in-law served five years in Poland working for the German railroad. Guess what he did? <laughs> he was a railroad car switcher for five years in Poland, where the worst of the worst camps were. Now, Papa never talked to his family about his wartime experiences, and you can understand but perhaps I'm a little bit more sensitized to the importance, not just of what, what do we do with the Jews, what do we do with the Jewish problem. And they're glad, by the way, they're glad that force can be used for just purposes. They're glad that there's not a universal moral proscription. And if Christians are preventing that, they'll accept that too. <laughs> let's, let's switch now to a new subject. Thank you for that answer. I'd like to switch <coughs> to the subject of the early church. One of the statements that you made, Professor Charles, was that the presentation that um, David Brousseau gave was overly simplistic, that he didn't, he didn't adequately explain the... No, no, I was speaking to Dean. Oh, I'm sorry, to yeah. Dean, that it was, yeah. it was overly simplistic, that it didn't capture accurately the, the views of the early church. Of Could, the just war tradition. Of the just war tradition. Well, I think he was speaking about the first three centuries okay. of the church. Correct me if I'm wrong. You said something about it's overly simplistic. I had made the comment. Oh, I made a comment in my presentation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was referring to. Right. So Sorry. That, that when, when he made the claim that during the first three centuries of the church that it was effectively a univocal testimony against war, and you said that was overly simplistic. Could you, could you clarify what uh, you meant by that? Yes, and I'm glad uh, over the last 30 years there's been a lot more historical research going on to show that there is ambiguity and diversity among the early fathers, and I'm speaking anti-Nicene, I'm speaking anti, that is pre-Constantinian fathers. Now, we know from the two chief pacifist fathers who are always cited, Tertullian and Origen, we know from both of them that Christians are already serving by the mid to late second century. They're against that. <laughs> They're not for that. They require personally that the Christian not be joining the military or fighting. But they're aware that Christians aren't uh, getting involved in the military. Let me just say, first of all, one would expect diversity and ambiguity as the church develops in terms of how it uh, grows and, and, and infiltrates 
all of the culture. So it would not be surprising, in, in my view, that you had this silence for the first, let's say, 150 years, because it would not have been an issue. Christians were not yet serving in prominent capacities. So the fact that there is a gradual shift, and I would, I would disagree strongly with John Howard Yoder that it wasn't a radical shift. There was a grad, gradual shift simply because of Christians uh, infiltrating, that is to say, going into the highways and byways. And so more and more, it would be natural that all sorts of vocations and uh, work possibilities would be open to them. In that regard, I recommend the work of the Just War historian James Turner Johnson, who has probably done as much as anyone in helping us go through not the, the post-Nicene, but the anti-Nicene fathers uh, to help us appreciate. No, not a univocal. <laughs> it's not univocal. And my problem is where our selective exegesis and reading of history fails then to allow some of the voices who uh, go against the flow uh, to speak. Even, and, and I would say this, even Tertullian, the early Tertullian is not as rabid as the latter one. He's not as anti-imperialistic as he is. Earlier on, he's writing in his apology to say, we Christians are everywhere, <laughs> and we do it gladly. We sail with you. We're not afraid of going into your nightclubs even if we don't. We are with you. We are farmers. We go into the inn. It's only later on, and the perception might be that he's reacting to an increasing trend within the Christian community. Origen, the other principal pacifist father, who is typically cited, in Against, Fel uh, against Selsum, says this. He says, yes, <clears throat> it's true. We are pacific. We are peace-loving, but we pray for the emperor. And even though we don't fight in the wars, we support them and we pray for the emperor and support the imperial process through our prayers. So he is not, uh, his position, even though he's personally pacifist, he is not against the Christian community supporting the process through their priestly function. Please, um, Dave, um, Mr. Brousseau or Mr. Taylor, your response. Well, yeah, we, that would be our position as well, that, that we uh, support our, our country, our government through our priestly function in prayer. That is all that the early Christians did. Now, you mentioned about soldiers being in the, in the army, and, and that is very clear when you read the early Christian writings. At the same time, it's very clear every single writer who talks on it condemns war, condemns killing, retaliating, all of those things. So it's like, okay, so how do you have this teaching that it's wrong and then you have soldiers in, in the army? Well, there's not, there's not, no, there's not a univocal condemnation of war. Okay, so, yeah. well, I'm That's saying not true. the ones who talk about it, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, a key that clears it all up, the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, you quote it in one of your books, so I know you're, you're familiar with it. Okay, this is talking about what happens when people come for baptism. And he goes through all these professions. An actor has to give it up. Uh, uh, somebody who makes idols has to give that profession up. Okay. A soldier of the civil authority who comes for baptism must be taught not to kill man and to refuse to do so if he is commanded and to refuse to take an oath. If he is unwilling to comply, he must be rejected. 
a military commander or civic magistrate that wears the purple must resign or be rejected. If a catechumen, that means somebody who's studying to become a Christian, or a believer seeks to become a soldier, they must be rejected for they have despised God. So the situation you have in ancient Rome, when you, in, well, it was generally hereditary, there was no conscription. Once you were in it, it was usually because your father was in it or you were hired. A lot of their soldiers were from other countries that they hired. The enlistment period was 20 years uh, during most of the early Christian period, sometimes 25 years. You could not get out by saying, I'm a conscientious objector. There was no way out. So the Christians had the choice of either, we will not let you come to Christ, we will not baptize you, or you can be baptized, but first you have to agree you will not kill anybody, even if you're ordered to do so. So there's no contradiction here. Clarification, uh, where do those words come from? What, what authority do they have? Is, are, is that a, a universal authority over all of Christendom? Or well, is that just an individual opinion? Well, it's not just one person. Hippolytus was a, uh, an elder in the Church of Rome. He's describing what all the churches do about baptism and catechumen? He's describing what was there in, in Rome. But, uh, and it's a valid question. Okay, was this the policy elsewhere? Well, how about this one? Canon 12 of the Council of Nicaea, the whole church. As many as were called by grace and displayed the first zeal, having cast aside their military girdles, but afterwards returned like dogs to their own vomit, so that some spent money and by means of gifts regained their military stations. Let these, after they have passed the space of three years as hearers, that means no communion, no participation, you're sitting up uh, in the back just listening, be for 10 years prostrators, still no communion for 10 years after, after that. But in all these cases, it is necessary to examine well into their purpose and what their repentance appears to be like. So this is the whole church speaking. I see a very uniform position. Even Tertullian says, yes, if you're already there. What you just quoted is from the Council of Nicaea? Yes, canons. yes, the Canons of the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, Canon 12. And that's a universal ruling, not just a local ruling. Nicaea was the whole church. It was yeah. the first ecumenical council. So no, I see a very uniform position. If you're already in it, you can't get out, which normally you can't, then you, you don't use a sword. Now, that might seem strange, but in the period of the early church, this was the Pax Romana. Soldiers spent just a very small part of their time actually out on the campaign, which was just the borders primarily. Most of them spent their, their years building roads, building bridges, building aqueducts, uh, civil servants, that sort of thing. So it was a very doable thing to not use the sword, but a lot of soldiers died as martyrs because the issue did come up and, and they died. If I may, uh, I'd like to ask the ushers to collect questions from, uh, from those who might have them. Please pass your questions in towards the middle uh, aisle and collect them and we will, we will do that. I want to uh, switch for a few minutes to a time in which I would allow um, the panelists to question each other on topics of their choosing. Um, I'll begin with uh, Dr. Kraft. All right, my question is, I'm very impressed with your premise although I don't think it leads to the conclusion. Your premise is that Christ is a revolutionary. We have to take all of his words with utmost seriousness and practice them and let the chips fall where they may. Fine. Uh, it's not only in the matter of killing, but in all other matters that he's a revolutionary too. For instance, uh, we must not lie to each other or deceive each other. Uh, Christians have a, a special relationship to truth. It's an absolute, it's not just a practical social necessity. 
Uh, in light of that, would you also be so revolutionary as to say that uh, if you are a Christian and you're hiding Jews from the Nazis, uh, you promise to hide them, they're in a secret room in your cellar, and the Nazis bang your door down and they say, do you have any Jews here? Would you lie to the Nazis to save the Jews? It's a good question. <laughs> yeah. And how does the Christian Revolution help to answer that question? There are always, you know, unusual situations where, yeah, you have to weigh those, those two things. But uh, uh, I don't know that Christ would lie. I, I, he might not just answer. I, I don't know. I, I can't picture Christ actually lying to, to somebody. Um, but, wow, because there's the strange things. That's like saying... Well, hey, you, you say Romans 13, we should obey the government. Now, if the government orders you to kill your children, would you do it? Well, no, I wouldn't. Oh, so then you don't take Romans 13 seriously. I mean, wow, there's always these what-if strange situations. But I don't think that undoes everything that Jesus taught because you but, can come but up that's with But that situation is resolved by common sense and natural reason. Well, well also, you know, we... Uh, in our tradition, we have like a Martyr's Mirror and the Hatterian Chronicles, those sorts of things. And they're actually full of stories that aren't just hypothetical. They're full of stories where people have come in, attacked communities, attacked different things. And in some of those, it's interesting to note how that painful truth-telling did get them in trouble. Uh, sometimes I would see them avoid it, you know, you would say it, uh, and you could avoid it, say something else, or explain it in a different way. But if you're not clever enough, what do you do? <laughs> you're not clever enough you're willing to die. And the, the whole point Are you with, willing to let other people who are innocent die? That's the question. You're you can, in, in any of those lives. situations, in any of those situations, you can refuse to say something. But I, I agree with, with Brother David's uh, point on this, is that we're, we're taking a, a, a situation here and trying to say what the behind the statement is that when Jesus said, that we have to tell the truth, he doesn't really mean we have to tell the truth as long as an inward disposition that's, is there. That's too abstract. What I, what I think is missing here is the concrete human relationship. Almost all ethical situations are about relationships between persons. Now, here's a soldier fighting for one country, here's a soldier fighting for another country. They confront each other on the battlefield. That's a relationship situation. Okay. Uh, now, here's a Dutchman hiding Jews from the Nazis. Here's a Nazi uh, banging down the door. That's a relationship situation. If the aggressive soldier who's bullying your people uh, can't be stopped except by lethal force, uh, I think it could be reasonably argued that he has given up his right to life. And I think that the Nazis have given up their right to truth. That the person that's wanting to do the killing has given up his right to life. To truth. To truth, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, then, whether I mean, you call it a lie or not, yeah. well, let's, let's I think you obviously do yeah, lie yeah, to the point, Nazis. Well taken. Well, let's go, go to the next question, uh, Mr. Taylor. There is no just war <laughs> teaching in the Old Testament, is there? Implicitly, wars that are commanded by God are just. Wars that are forbidden by God are unjust. There is no explicit statement about what universal, rational criteria justify or disjustify a war. It's, it's a huge difference between God deciding to put his wrath upon this earth or to spread his kingdom and to call that a just war. There is no 
word of just war theology in the Old Testament. There's certainly an implicit theology there because God is just and God commands some wars, therefore some wars must be just. But that's, yeah, you're evading the, the, the question now because you've made a distinction between holy war, that's when God commands a war, that's holy war, and just war, that it's not because God commands it, but because you have these principles that you sit down and look at. Now, well, in what, the Old wait, wait, Testament... No, 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 I disagree. Uh, if by holy war you mean simply a war commanded by God, right. then you're saying that a thing is good only because God commands it, rather than that God commands it because it's good, and that makes God arbitrary. Is those Old Testament wars more of God's wrath and judgment on the earth, or is it this just war that we're hearing here portrayed? They've got to, com they've got to coincide. Or is the, there God a, is just. Or is there a development in terms of salvation history from a theocracy, from a theocratic dealing with the covenant people, to all people? A consistency. All right, so there's no just war teaching in the Old Testament. There's You've got no holy just, war. There's holy war. There's no just war teaching in the New Testament, is there? Implicitly, well, I think it, there is. Sure. Implicitly. Sure. There's no just war teaching in the first 300 years of the church, is there? There's some there, there is That's a 4,000-year gap in your just war theory. That's a bit of an oversimplification. Okay, okay. who teaches just war in the early church? For Christians, I mean, the discussion is for yeah. Christians. Yeah, who, who, who teaches? Well, it existed. There are pre-Christian uh, expressions of it, but it's developed and refined primarily within the Christian moral tradition. And it's first Ambrose and Augustine who, and they're not, they're not even, they are systematic. Mm -hmm. But it begins, and it's germinal, and when you piece together, when you read... Uh, when you read Augustine's letters as well as the City of God, and then several... Uh, I, I think he's asking, though, about the early church the, for the first 300 years. Is there a, is there anti, a person you can... Are you Anti-Nicene. Uh -huh. Anti-Nicene. Yeah. I would say that simply because the, the church has not permeated all of society yet, it would be unreasonable to expect that some sort of systematic body of teaching or moral principles, if you're looking for that or evidence of that, would even be on display until they become, as a people, socialized and have infiltrated all of the empire. Well, the obvious change is not just that you get more individual Christians in different occupations, including the military. The obvious change is from a pagan empire to a Christian empire. Say that last part again. From a pagan from empire a pagan that empire. contains some Christians to a Christian empire Christian that contains empire. some pagans. You're saying the growth, the growth yeah. of the church yeah. in the Roman Empire developed, yeah. precipitated the development of See, the church. See, our, our response yeah. to that would be you cannot have such a thing as a Christian empire. Really? You're going to have to compromise Jesus' teachings to have a whole empire become Christian, and that's exactly what happened, why you had to come up with the just war theory. Aren't you yourself a member of a community, and therefore a small empire that is composed exclusively of Christians? I don't think I would call it an empire. I'm part of a community, but we're talking about nations, governments. I think we're, we all know what we're talking about well, here. Well, there are local governments, and there are uh, Imperial Rome, and there's all sorts of things in between, large and small nations, yeah. states. You define empire. Yeah, you don't get Imperial Rome, everyone being Christian, unless you compromise the teachings of Christ. I mean, there is no way that people are going to live by his teachings, and that's why Augustine had suppose, to... Suppose every single citizen in the entire Roman Empire converted to Christianity. Would you then have a Christian empire? 
if they were real conversions, yeah, uh, Origen hoped that that would happen. And he said, if that ever happens, we won't have wars because we'll just mm -hmm. need to pray mm -hmm. and that will take care of it. And I believe that. That's a great idea. If so, you had so genuine... A, so it's not a matter of principle, but a matter of prudence or pragmatism uh, to dissociate Christians from government. It's a matter of compromise. If you're going to run a government of this world, you're not going to run it by the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if somebody can do that, that's wonderful. I don't know who has ever done that. I don't think Jesus even intended to do that. No, Jesus did not intend to do not, it. He said, my kingdom officials. is not of this world. He didn't come here to set up Christian governments that would end up behaving hardly any better than pagan governments. The interesting thing is when he said that, my kingdom is not of this world, he said it to Pilate, and the answer of Pilate's kind of interesting. He said, well, are you a king then? Like to say, well, does that even count? And his, his answer was, yes, for this reason I have come into this world. And for this reason I have come to, to, to tell the truth, to give the truth. And all those who follow me, I'm paraphrasing, follow this truth. And so the, the, the whole concept of following Jesus is exactly what Jesus said his purpose was here, to give us this new way for humanity. And the, as we see, as we follow this 4,000 year gap until we get to Ambrose and Augustine, and then right before that, we know, and it's, it's been explained a little different, the difference of uh, how, what happened with Constantine. But to, to say that there wasn't a huge change when Constantine legalized Christianity and we began to see these things develop, that's when we see these developments occurring. It's when the, the state was mixed with the world in a, a very formal way. And that gave more changes. I think almost any historian would agree there's never been a change more than that. So let's, um, let's, let's pause. I want to make sure that we, we're honoring our time commitments, and I want to get to some questions from the audience. These are difficult questions. Uh, there's been a lot of great discussion. The first question is to the, the says pacifists here, but to the non-resistance. Based on your arguments, this must be a salvation issue. That being said, are you concerned for Peter Kreft's and Jay Darrell's, Charles's salvation for preaching contradictory teaching to Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay, let me, ask the, let me answer the question with a question, okay? Can you be a follower of Christ without following Christ? But in answer to the question, we don't sit here judging people. I don't think going to war is the unforgivable sin. I don't think holding to the just war theory is the un unforgivable sin. We would feel that going to war is sin, but yeah, it isn't our place to judge what God is going to do with this person or, or that person. We're talking about what we feel is right and how we, we live and what we're going to preach to others. But as far as judging where everyone else stands... I'm particularly no. sensitive to it because I was a soldier. And as I said at the very beginning, God began to, you know, as I began to open up his word and thought, you know, I think he means this stuff. And as I did that, it was a journey that I had and to really embrace the teachings of Jesus in reality. And so, yeah, you know, that's, there's a whole dynamic of that, you know, in different people's expression of where they're at with their faith. So, Finney, we, I think we can say we're reading Scripture through different lenses. We have two interpretive models, okay? I mean, let's be honest about that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a filter there. I mean, we all have filters, okay? None of us does not, right? So... We can be honest about that. 
But the, the original question is a good one because uh, really this position would be heretical because it's being called for universally in, throughout all of Christendom. Pardon? Well, that wasn't the question, and I'm comforted by that. Yeah. Well, uh, but, so but, I, I agree with, I agree with but, Dr. But Charles. But you see, you have, different, you have a different understanding of Christian theology. No one mentioned tonight, for example, Paul's, the cosmic scope of, of Paul's understanding of redemption developed in Colossians 1, that all things material, immaterial, uh, visible, invisible, have been redeemed. <laughs> and that means all vocations that do not in principle violate uh, laws, the law of nature. Creation mandates can be used to glorify the Lord if performed in faith. Hence the question is an important one that has to be asked. Hence it's an important question I think that has to be answered honestly uh, because it's a question uh, that is very much alive in uh, the body of Christ. Next question is to the just war side. This is, it says, question of a seven-year-old. How can a Christian kill an unbeliever knowing they are sending them to hell? I don't think you can make the judgment that just because so-and-so is not a believer or does not identify himself as a believer, he's going to hell. First of all, only God knows who's going to hell and who isn't. Uh, Socrates was not a believer. Uh, I would be rather surprised not to see him in heaven because he was a martyr for the truth and he sought the true God, although he lived at a time and place where he just didn't have enough information. So I just don't think we can make that judgment. Uh, the only state of soul in which it is safe to kill somebody, the only motive uh, in which it is safe to kill somebody is a holy motive, a, a motive that you think is, that you sincerely believe is what God wants you to do. Luther, and we think that's possible and you think it's not. Luther, Luther answers this question in a very interesting way using a medical analogy. Of course, believers in his day are asking him and asking others, and he's hearing the question, how can charity kill? <laughs> how can charity take someone's life, to which he responded, uh, it seems very hard to believe that charity could actually take another's life. But for him, a medical model per perhaps uh, does some justice. Consider the doctor who performs radical surgery by amputating a limb. You remove what is diseased, and what was the motive? What's the motive that amputates? It's grisly, it's bloodshedding, <laughs> and there's no guarantee, but it's charitable nonetheless because of the source of the problem. Uh, maybe Luther's response doesn't satisfy all of us, but it seems to me uh, maybe C.S. Lewis does. And he writes in this wonderful little essay called The Humanitarian Theory of uh, Punishment, and that's part of the wonderful collection God in the Dock, this way, he's, com he's comparing a very humanistic, secular understanding of human nature and the Christian worldview. And he says, what is it, he asks, what does it mean to be uh, made in the image of God? It means to be holding people accountable and treating them as moral agents. So we treat people as moral agents and hold them accountable. 
Maybe not all of us in the room are grateful for criminal justice. I am. <laughs> uh, I think it performs a valuable service to society. And it seems to me that there can be, there can be coercive, even lethal force. If pro that's why the just war tradition emphasizes so much right intention. Not just le right, uh, legitimate authority, yes. Not just just cause, yes. But also right intention. That is to say, charity must be wed to justice. And charity must uh, motivate all that we do, even those of us who are non-pacifist ideologically. OK. Um, I just can't let like, go okay, a little I, bit I, there. Actually, Dean, you know what? We're, we're okay. running, oh, running short on time. Okay, okay. Uh, I want to give um, uh, just some time to go through some of these questions. Uh, one question is, David, to respond quickly to the early church uh, ideas that were, were raised before, very, very quickly. I don't know that I can do it quickly. Do your best. <laughs> yeah, I, you make the statement, oh, if, if we look at it in a nuanced thing, we see there's, there's this the conflicting views on um, uh, the early Christian stand on war, that Tertullian changed uh, his position uh, over the years. Um, you talk about the, uh, in your books, about the thundering legion, and I think each of the books I've read, you, you talk about it and you say, what is of interest in this story, regardless of its embellishments and varied accounts, is the information that Christians were already serving in the army. And you say, Tertullian mentions this incident on two separate occasions without a hint of suggestion that these believers were wrong in joining the Roman legion. Now, how do you know they were believers when they joined the Roman legion? Yeah, and that's speculation. Well, yeah, but, but, in but, but if, if we know that they're praying to God as, as the issue is not how they became, but the well, fact that faith is found among soldiers who are yeah, serving but in the Yeah, it, but it is a big issue whether <laughs> Christians could join the army or whether you simply had converts in the army. But the can other I, thing... Can I read the text? Yeah. I, you know what? In the interest of time, I think we should not, not read it, okay. just, just to keep it moving because we, we are running short. Go ahead. Well, it just, it's good to read the actual... Yeah, because yeah, otherwise, yeah, I mean... It's, make, yeah, it part, make it part of your five-minute uh, closing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. All right, let, let's move on to, to the next question. Um, uh, this is to the, the just war side. Pope Innocent VIII ordered in a, in a papal bull to exterminate the Waldensians. If the Pope cannot determine what a just war is, who can? No. That mm. was not ex cathedra. That was a personal judgment. So just, yeah, yeah, so can you explain, mm. explain the view there? Mm. Well, let me just say, as a preface, uh, the Catholic Catechism it's, uh, itself says that we look to, we, we have representative leadership who consult and make decisions. And the it's not the church making decisions regarding foreign policy. <laughs> so the Catholic tradition itself, uh, as expressed in what is authoritative, the Catholic Catechism says these are representative political figures who make those decisions. Now the church should be informing them, there should be conversation, there should be national conversations, but it's not the church that should be making policy okay. and making such pronouncements. Okay, <laughs> I want to give time to our closing statements now. We're, we're, um, we're running short on time. What we'll do is we'll have, in turn, each person give a five-minute uh, closing statement, and the order has been predetermined already. We'll start off with Professor Charles. Okay. We're not going to have any interaction with the, with the audience? No, just the questions. Yeah. All right. 
Well, I, want, I, uh, I think uh, to conclude, I'd like to emphasize the importance of the church's mainstream teaching. Uh, its interpretation of church history, its interpretation of scripture, I think that has to be a consensual uh, process. And uh, it's not as if that God didn't have a church for the better part of 14, 15, 16 centuries. Secondly, and relatedly, there's a particular reading of the New Testament and the early fathers uh, that assumes that the church fell, that it compromised, that it accommodated itself, that it became a handmaiden of the state. And I would want to argue that that portrait needs to be adjusted. It's not quite so tidy. (laughs) It's a little bit more messy. The implication is there was this radical shift by the time of Constantine. That was really not the case. There was this reaction after Diocletian because of the unprecedented persecutions up to this point. And so you can imagine believers, perhaps not just Eusebius, who's very, very, he's very uh, much applauding of Constantine, but you can imagine how believers would have rejoiced that there is less persecution and there might be an authority that is looking to the sovereign authority in heaven, at least acknowledging that. So I would argue for a little bit more ambiguity and diversity. That's the way it is. That's the way it'll always be. And I would argue it has always been that way in the church. Uh, And I would want to say something too here. And this, of course, harkens back to John Howard Yoder. For Yoder, the center of the New Testament's teaching on the state was not Romans 13, which came up tonight, but Revelation 13. There's a reason for that. It's because, in essence, he, he understood the powers to be evil. And I would want to say that needs to be adjusted somewhat, that both Romans 13 and Romans and Revelation 13 can. But if all authority, as our brothers read tonight, flow from the throne of heaven, then authority per se is not evil. It's not even an evil that needs to be tolerated. I want to say, as a Christian, where are the Christians who, in a redemptive way, want to serve in government and help leaven the culture that way? So authority is not evil per se, even when authority can be used for unjust and evil purposes. Um, uh, also, I want to say, with Augustine's emphasis in the city of God on to our two, our dual citizenships, that's so important, never comes up in conversation or debate. Yes, Roman culture was crumbling around him literally as he's writing, and yet he has the nerve to say, we've got two citizenships and we better take both citizenships very seriously. That includes the city of man. I think that comports with the Pauline theology of the redemption of all things and being faithful therein. And then finally, I just want to thank my family members uh, who demonstrate Christian discipleship and charity and service to the Lord. My wife is a medical professional. My daughter is a professional therapist. My oldest son is preparing to counsel military personnel. Gee, I wonder what he's going to tell them. (laughs) My daughter-in-law serves in military affairs. My youngest son is in grad school studying Shakespearean literature. Man, I hope he doesn't go on stage. That would be, Tertullian would not have liked that. My sister just retired from working with the Department of State and Commerce. My younger brother, with his wife, trains and works with show horses. Now that's worldly. All are examples of the fact that ideological pacifism and non-resistance 
and a, yes, an absolute separation between Christ and the world are not uh, a clear teaching of the scripture. And uh, with that, I think I will close and leave whatever is time left for others. Thank you very much. The next closing statement will be given by Mr. Brousseau. In, in hearing us, it's been a, a, a very vigorous debate. I hope you all realize we're friends. We all had supper together and did a lot of joking and, and laughing. So, so don't think we've lost our Christian charity, but we, we feel very strongly about our views. and That's good. Now, tonight, you've heard two different viewpoints about Christians in war, non-resistance and the just war theory. One of these approaches works in real life and the other one doesn't. Okay. Now, most people assume, well, okay, it's the just war theory that, that works because that does fit our human thinking. And certainly the just war theory sounds good on paper, but in reality, it's a fantasy position. I, I kept listening all night to see if they were gonna point out a war, a conflict that the just war theory actually stopped or a war where all Christians or most Christians said, hey, we're not gonna participate in that because that war is unjust. The simple right. truth is in every war, Christians on all sides have said, we're fighting for a just cause. Now, maybe they didn't go down all of the, the different principles because that never works in real life, right. but they always come up with the justification and so they go to war. Um, and as was mentioned, every war in the Middle Ages was a just war. They, um, and, and the Pope himself, the Crusades, he, he told everybody if you got killed in the crusade, you would go straight to heaven. He called the invasion of England by the uh, Normans a just war. He encouraged them to, to do that. This is when Christians were in charge of things. And we'll look at a mess that they, they uh, made of the entire Europe. I mean, we, we've had more peace in the last 70 years in Europe when people have largely given up on Christianity during all of those centuries when Christians were the ones in charge in Christian governments, you had war after war mm. after war. What about non-resistance? Has it ever been tried on a large scale? Yes, it has. As I mentioned, as, as we have been telling you, this was the original position, regardless of what they tell you. I would say, read the early Christian writings for, right. for yourselves, and I think you will see that there was a uniform voice that Christians did not kill even pagans, let alone other Christians. There is no incident in the Antinicene Fathers that I know of, even one incident of a Christian killing another Christian. Now that is something remarkable because you did not have that after Augustine and, and uh, Ambrose and the just mm -hmm. war theory. Right. And it wasn't just war that Augustine said is okay. He gave a nice apology for torture. Mm -hmm. He gave a nice apology for religious persecution. Mm -hmm. He was great at coming up with rationalizations of why Christians can basically live no differently than the world and act the same way. Now, we all know that in the Old Testament, God allowed war. But through the prophets, God had pointed to a new era, right. an era when men would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, listen to the rest of this a time when nation would not lift up sword against nation, neither would they learn war anymore. Amen. Now, most Christians think, oh, well, that's in the millennium when that's going to happen. But the early Christians said, no, this is happening right now. Amen. Writer after writer quotes that prophecy and says, look at us. We have beaten our swords into plowshares. We have learned war 
no more. Now, there aren't very many Christian churches that can say that today. And since the time of the early Christians, when they did this, when they protected the Roman Empire through their prayers, there have been Christians all through the centuries who have been biblically non-resistant Christians who held to the same position as the early church, as the Schleidheim Confession down to today. Sorry, having a senior moment a lot tonight. <laughs> when Jesus started his ministry, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. And he invited people to join his kingdom and to walk in his footsteps. Tonight, 2,000 years later, his invitation still stands. Amen. 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 The next concluding statement will come from Professor Kraft. C.S. Lewis gave a lecture entitled Why I Am Not a Pacifist to the English Pacifist Society. Like Daniel lecturing the lions in the den. Uh, I want to quote four reasons why he is not a pacifist. I realize that my, our opponents are not classical pacifists, but I'd still call them semi-pacifists, so this is relevant. Uh, the first and most obvious reason uh, for a just war is that it is a practical necessity. Lewis writes, it is arguable that a criminal can always be satisfactorily dealt with without the death penalty. But it is certain that a whole nation cannot be prevented from taking whatever it wants except by war. It is almost equally certain that the absorption of some societies by other societies can often be a greater evil. The doctrine that war is always the greatest evil seems to imply a materialist ethic, a belief that death and pain are the greatest evils. I do not think they are. I think the suppression of a higher religion by a lower, or even a higher secular culture by a lower, an even greater evil. That two soldiers on opposite sides, each believing his own country to be in the right, each at the moment when his selfishness is most in abeyance and his will to sacrifice in the ascendant should kill each other in plain battle, seems to me by no means one of the most terrible things in this very terrible world. Of course, one of them at least must be mistaken. And of course, war is a very great evil, but that is not the question. The question is whether war is the greatest evil in the world, so that any state of affairs which might result from submission is certainly preferable. I see no cogent arguments for that view. In fact, only liberal societies tolerate pacifists. In the liberal society, the number of pacifists will either be large enough to cripple the state as a belligerent or not. If not, you have done nothing. If it is large enough, then you have handed over the state, which does tolerate pacifists, to its totalitarian neighbor, which does not. Pacifism of this kind takes the straight road to a world in which there will be no pacifists. Second argument is very simple. It's simply from human authority. The world echoes with the praise of righteous war. To be a pacifist, I must part company with Homer, with Virgil, with Plato, with Aristotle, with Zarathustra, with the Bhagavad Gita, with Cicero, with Montaigne, with Iceland, with Egypt. That's at least a serious, though not a compelling argument. The argument from divine authority has to rest not on any particular era in church history, but with, on Christ himself. Uh, 
Lewis interprets his command to turn the other cheek uh, this way. Does anyone suppose that our Lord's hearers understood him to mean that if a homicidal maniac attempting to murder a third party tried to knock me out of the way, I must stand aside and let him get his victim? Finally, there's a question of motivation. Uh, it's very clear that we are not to put justice above charity, that we are not to revenge ourselves upon wrongs, that we are to forgive our neighbor, that we are to love our neighbor. That is extremely difficult, and each of us knows from experience that the temptation to yield to that very natural impulse to use violence wrongly is extremely strong and extremely difficult to, to overcome, even if you're a principled pacifist, and we are not to, to yield at all to that. However, the motivation of someone who believes in a just war for fighting in this war can be a high and holy motivation. Uh, war has been assumed to be a, a selfish thing. Well, perhaps on the part of those who strategize it, yes, but on the part of those who fight in it, all that we fear, Lewis says, from all the kinds of adversity, severally, is collected together in the life of a soldier on active service. Like sickness, it threatens pain and death. Like poverty, it threatens ill lodging, cold, heat, thirst, and hunger. Like slavery, it threatens toil, humiliation, injustice, and arbitrary rule. Like exile, it separates you from all that you love. Like the galleys, it imprisons you at close quarters. It threatens every temporal evil. In fact, every evil except dishonor and final perdition. And those who bear it like it no better than you would like it. On the other side, although it may not at all be your fault, it is certainly a fact that pacifism threatens you with almost nothing. We'll have a final closing uh, announcement by Dean Taylor. I will make some uh, final remarks and we'll give a final round of applause after my remarks to the entire panel. Dean Taylor. Soren Kierkegaard once said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My, you'll say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? And then he continues to say, herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament." End quote. Yes, the matter really is quite simple. As a matter of fact, Jesus put his teachings in very simple terms. It was just two words, follow me. But there's a lot in those two words. There has been many ways that the teachings of Jesus have been ignored throughout the centuries. 
I was told by churches in my youth that Jesus' words for a different dispensation, a millennial reign or for heaven or something. But I eventually had to ask seriously, how hard is it to love your enemies in heaven? Ultimately, I had to come to terms with the fact that these teachings are for today. At a very basic level, I finally had to ask myself, can a person be a follower of Christ without following Christ? It seems ridiculous to ask such a question like this, but in some ways, that is what we are arguing here today. But see, the hard part, however, for all of us is that following Jesus eventually leads to a cross. The good news is that because of the resurrection, in the truest sense, we never really die. This promise of the resurrection gave incredible power to the early church. When you have confidence what your eternity will be like, it really affects the way you live your life. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And that doesn't mean we have a martyrdom complex, but it does mean having a theology of martyrdom, a life that is genuinely dead to ourselves, but alive to Christ. Without this, all the teachings of Christ are nonsense, simple, but not easy. I think the what-if questions that we discussed here are the best ones that are asked in these types of debates. We can ask tough questions about theology or scary things that happen in history. When it comes home, it's harder. But the truth is, at times, bad stuff does happen, as we've said. But see, Christians have a secret weapon. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, the Apostle Paul gives us what I call the Christian nuclear warhead. Now just take for a moment and conjure up any and every what-if that you can possibly imagine. What if Hitler was not stopped? What if someone breaks into my house? What if someone kicks my dog? Anything. Now, listen to what the Apostle says. Quote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Honestly, that just doesn't sound like just war theory to me. Then he continues, yet in all these things, all those terrible things, in all these things we are more than conquerors. He continues, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did he leave anything out? I don't think he did. This is the theology of martyrdom. And with that, we can be more than conquerors. Okay, at the end of his life, the defeated emperor, Napoleon, was exiled to a remote island off the coast of Africa. There, humbled by defeat and imprisonment, he wrote something very revealing in his journal. Quote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, and Charlemagne, and I founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Are you one of them? Join us, and together let's strengthen the church, spreading his kingdom by lifting up the teachings and example of Christ 
to the healing of the nations. I'd like to make just three uh, brief statements. This is the first event of a full weekend. You can see on the back of your programs, uh, if you turn to that, the, the schedule of events, we invite you to participate in as many of those as you are able. We have a number of questions we were not able to get to. I would propose that for tomorrow's breakfast, we can discuss a number of these questions. Some of them are, are very good and require some further discussion. The second is in your bulletin, there's also in your program rather, there's a feedback card. We would invite you if you are interested to hear uh, more such events or receive our monthly newsletter, please sign up and drop your card in the back of the room. And then finally, as you depart, we have a parting CD gift for those who are here. And let's now conclude our very rousing and stimulating evening by giving a round of applause to all of our four panelists. I wonder what you thought about that. It's really an intriguing debate. If you're interested in this subject and would like to check out a website that has resources that is on the side of David Brousseau and Dean Taylor, please visit my loveyourenemies.wordpress.com where you can find a bunch of relevant scriptures, articles, book recommendations, and other resources related to difficult questions that often come up with this subject. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this. Tune in on Sunday to hear about Joe and Rebecca Martin, who are a missionary team in Africa, and their story and what they've been able to do over the last several years in Malawi, Mozambique, and Kenya. Also, if it's not too much trouble, Please share this episode, if it's of interest for you, with people on your social media network, and this will help others to find out about this show. Visit us at restitudio.org for an archive of all previous podcasts, articles, and a couple of video classes. And we'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.